Hello and welcome to Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. On the show today, executive producer Cy Gonick will discuss a new book, If You're In My Way, I'm Walking, with the author Tom Workman. And I'll be chatting with Alert contributor Jim Silver, who will be talking about a sit-down meeting with six North End gang members in Winnipeg. We'll also have the Alert headlines. And Around the Left in Seven Days. Plus Music is the Weapon with Mitch Podolik. That and much more on Alert Radio. And now the alert headlines for the week of September 24th, 2009. Two dozen Greenpeace protesters chained themselves to trucks at Shell's Muskeg River mine site in Alberta last week. Albertan Minister of Public Security, Fred Lindsay, said he does not know how the protesters managed to gain access to the site. The work site was believed to be a tightly controlled area. The province says it is concerned that terrorists could potentially inflict real damage. The Greenpeace protesters stayed at the site for 31 hours before leaving. No charges were laid. ACORN, the Association of Community Organizers for Reform Now, is currently under government attack in the U.S. Right-wing groups have campaigned against this voter registration organization for years. Most recently, two undercover Republicans filmed ACORN staff members responding to inquiries about carrying out allegedly illegal activities. ACORN supports minority voters and the right to vote. The association also aids the poor in finding health care. The Democratic Party is investigating ACORN despite the lack of criminal evidence. It is possible that ACORN will be shut down. The future of its Canadian operations is not known. Gaza's water supply is in danger of collapse. The Israeli bombardment has caused $6 million worth of damage to the Gaza water supply. Construction materials are essential to rebuilding the water system, but an Israeli blockade is preventing any materials from being brought into the country. The underground water system is so contaminated that only 5 to 10 percent of it is safe to drink. This system is the source of drinking water for the entire country. The average consumption of water per capita in Gaza is already less than the World Health Organization recommends per person each day. A U.S.-Columbia agreement has arranged to install five more U.S. military bases in Colombia. Bolivian President Evo Morales wants to put an end to military bases in Latin America. He was the victim of a military coup attempt last year. Morales said that the American military bases are more related to coups than to achieving peace and democracy. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez also believes that American military bases are not an adequate solution to conflict in Latin America. Chavez is the president of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, USPV. The USPV has begun a series of mobilizations in protest against American military bases. Canada has yet to ratify its free trade agreement with Colombia as opposition mounts to delay ratification in view of Colombia's poor human rights record. The unemployment rate across the U.S. has increased alarmingly due to the economic crisis. 
Unemployment in California, the biggest state of the union, is at its highest since just after the Great Depression in 1940. The state was once seen as the symbol of American post-war prosperity. To eliminate the deficit not permitted in this state, the state government has approved of budget cuts in education and social programs. The Obama administration will not be offering any help to Californian public infrastructure, health care or welfare programs. University fees in California are increasing as high as 30 percent, and state workers are seeing wage cuts of 15 percent. Across the United States, more than 7 million people have signed up for free food stamps from the government since the recession started, bringing the total dependent on food stamps to more than 35 million Americans. This is nearly 12 percent of the entire population. The numbers would be higher still, but millions are ineligible. The number would be higher still, but millions are ineligible to receive food stamps. Echoing comments by Jim Stanford heard on Alert last week, some mainstream economists are now admitting that governments have not tackled the problems at the heart of the economic slump, so that after a weak recovery, the global economy is likely to slip back into recession. William White, former chief economist at the Bank for International Settlements, has noted that there is a sharp risk of a double-dip recession or a protracted stagnation such as Japan suffered in the 1990s and has yet to fully recover from. France's president, Nicolas Sarkozy, believes that national accounting systems need a major overhaul. Besides using gross domestic product as a measure of a nation's well-being, he wants to include health services, welfare provisions, holiday time, and other quality-of-life indicators as yardsticks for economic performance. To devise the new accounting system, last year Sarkozy set up an international panel headed up by U.S. Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz. Unveiled last week, Sarkozy urged other countries to adopt the new measures. And those are the alert headlines for the week of Thursday, September 24th, 2009. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 24th, 2009. You, Me, and the SPP, a new film by Paul Manley, exposes the corporate agenda of the Security Prosperity Partnership. The film is being screened on Parliament Hill on October 1st at 7 p.m. Following the showing, there will be a panel discussion which includes Paul Manley and NDP trade critic Peter Julian, as well as members from the Council of Canadians, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Common Frontiers. The Socialist Project and the Center for Social Justice are sponsoring a panel discussion with the co-director of People Organized to Win Employment Rights, Steve Williams. This organization helps low-income residents of San Francisco fight for affordable housing and basic rights for workers in the domestic work industry. The discussion is held at the Ryerson University Student Center on October the 2nd at 7 p.m. The 2010 Olympics will certainly increase revenue for the city of Vancouver, but will this happen at the expense of its citizens? Local activists are holding a panel discussion to remind residents of their civil liberties. The goal is to inform citizens of the methods of criminalizing dissents being employed by the city, including the targeting of inner-city residents and activists. This free event is being held at the Fletcher Challenge Theatre at SFU Harbour Centre and begins at 7 p.m. 
Uranium has not been mined in Ontario since 1996, but the provincial government is now welcoming uranium mining companies to explore rural Ontario. When uranium is mined, water, land and air are all contaminated, which in turn can affect the health of nearby populations. On September 22nd, Green Party leader Elizabeth May, Executive Director of Greenpeace, Bruce Cox and Robert Lovelace, a retired chief of the Ardoch Algonquins, will rally at the south lawn of Queen's Park to speak out against uranium mining. The demonstration begins at 2. The second annual Toronto-Palestine Film Festival runs September 26th to October 2nd at various cinemas in Toronto. The films examine diverse topics, all of which document the vibrant heritage, resilience and culture of the Palestinian people. And that's Around the Left in 7 Days for the week of September 24th, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. Jim Silver, a longtime contributor to Canadian Dimension, works on inner city issues and teaches politics at the University of Winnipeg. Recently, he and some of his colleagues met with six members of a North End street gang to talk about gang-related violence on the streets of Winnipeg. Welcome back to Alert, Jim Silver. Thanks, Chris. How did this meeting come about, Jim? And was it a one-off one type of meeting, or was it a series of them? Um, there was a funeral in the North End in the early summer for two guys who were shot in a drive-by shooting, one of them killed. And a group of us were approached at the end of the funeral by some members of a North End street gang. They wanted to talk with us, wanted to talk about the violence in the North End and what it's like uh, growing up and living in the North End and the kinds of things that they think ought to be done. So we arranged to meet with them uh, in a rural Manitoba town um, over a two-day period, and we uh, interviewed them, talked, had a conversation with them, with six of them, uh, for a total of eight hours. Wow. <laughs> and uh, three of the guys, uh, they're all Aboriginal guys, three of them in their late 30s, three of them in their early 20s, all have uh, done time. Some of them have done long spells uh, in prison. Uh, so they're, you know, they're the real thing. Uh, one of uh, there were four of us on our side. One of them, Larry Morissette, who uh, has worked with street gang members for a long time in the North End. So it was through Larry that uh, these guys approached us. And so, what I want to ask you is, some of the comments uh, these men made during these two days of meetings. What did they have to say about what's being done now to police the streets and the use of serious prison time? to deter crimes of violence and theft? Well, I think they had some really thoughtful things to say about prison, for example. Um, surprisingly, they quite openly acknowledge that if they do uh, serious crimes, they ought to go to prison. You know, one of them said that, you know, there has to be laws for people like us. Okay. But they said, uh, if you think that putting street gang members in prison is going to solve the problem, you're crazy. That won't <laughs> solve the problem. You ought to put us in jail but it won't solve the problem. And they had interesting things to say about serving time. You know, I mean, when they go, they go with their friends. They learn uh, how to be better criminals. And uh, it really, you know, uh, they can deal with it. They can cope with it. Uh, but they are very emphatic in saying it isn't going to solve the problem. And furthermore, they say, look, there are really no short-term problems to uh, 
uh, solutions to the to this problem of the growing level of violence in the North End. You know, I mean, the police this past summer have flooded the North End with cruiser cars, and they have been, I would say, harassing uh, young Aboriginal males, stopping them, uh, interrogating them, and so on. And these guys say that, uh, you know, all that's going to do is just make the vast majority of Aboriginal people in the North End who are not involved in crime uh, angry with the police. And the difficult relations that the Aboriginal community have with the police will be made worse. So they really conclude by saying jail isn't going to solve the problem. There are no short-term solutions to the problem. The problem, they said, and this was the main point that they uh, returned to over and over again, the, the root of the problem is poverty and systemic racism, and if you don't deal with that, then there will be no solution. So we do, they said several times, and we titled our report, if, if you want to stop violence in the hood, you have to change the hood. So we took that to be, a, you know, a very classical socialist interpretation of the problem of uh, crime in the North End. And so that is very interesting. Um, and so you answered the question when, uh, in regards to their opinion on using more police on the street. Their answer is there is already enough police in the North End, and it's going to raise our backs. It's going to raise the backs of Aboriginals who already you know, who may not partake in crime, the vast majority do not, and That's it's right. just going to get their backs up. So you've answered that question. How about some other suggested solutions, Jim, like negotiating a truce between the gangs? Is there something yeah, like that that was we, talked about? We advanced several, uh, several options, several possibilities to get their opinions. So, for example, we said, do you think that a truce could be negotiated amongst street gang members? Uh, and and they, they instantly said, not a chance. You know, okay. like the leadership all know each other. As, as, as one of the guys, a senior guy in this particular street gang, said, you know, we've, the leaders have known each other since we were kids because we've, we've been in prison together since we were kids. Right. But there's just no trust. And what's more, what's, what makes a truce even more difficult is the fact that now there are so many factions. Um, you know, it isn't that there are two or three big street gangs. There are all kinds of little factions, breakaway groups, so that even if a truce were negotiated, it couldn't hold. We talked about a gun amnesty. You know, could, could there be a period during which people could turn guns in uh, in order to get, I mean, the, the number of guns, the availability of uh, handguns in the North End now is apparently, I mean, you can get them uh, absolutely easily. Very so accessible. Very, very accessible. And so can we get some of those off the street through a gun amnesty and in that way reduce the level of violence? And the guy said, you know, that, that just isn't going to work because somebody finds a gun in the back alley and, you know, they're just going to turn around and sell it to a street gang member in order to make money. I mean, they, they, they really were pretty emphatic in saying short-term solutions, no, there aren't any. You've allowed the North End to grow more and more poor. You've allowed racism to grow more and more deep over a 30-year period, and now you think there's a short-term solution? No. Okay, so that leads me to my next question. Um, is this perhaps why street crime is so widespread in parts of a city like Winnipeg because of what you've just mentioned, or are there other reasons? Did they share other opinions or reasons why they feel street crime is so spread out around the city? Well, certainly their view is that the root cause is is poverty and the way that young Aboriginal people, some young Aboriginal people in the North End grow up, that uh, they're out at all hours of the night, they're unsupervised, they 
live in families that are having difficulties of various kinds. They, uh, you know, there isn't food in the fridge, and then they see street gang members carrying around wads of money in their pocket. The young kids do, and so they say to themselves, "Gee, uh, maybe I should be a gangster." You know, then I've got uh, food to eat. I've got money in my pocket. So that's part of it. But I think, uh, you know, in addition to that, the uh, high level of availability of illegal drugs. So, you know, um, it's difficult now to find well-paid jobs. The structure of the labor market has changed dramatically in recent years. Uh, Young Aboriginal people in particular have difficulty finding well-paid jobs because of systemic uh, racism and various other kinds of factors. And so illegal drugs create another uh, avenue of economic opportunity. Right. And then add to that the ready availability of guns. I mean, the, the the drug trade is competitive. If there are guns at hand, you use the guns. So drugs and guns. Drugs and, drugs and guns in the context of poverty and shortage of other kinds of opportunities. And so you've got, you know, uh, bright and energetic young people blocked from making uh, a legitimate uh, living who sees these other opportunities. And so uh, you've answered the question about why they get into street gangs, and, and you've just mentioned their comments on why kids get into street gangs. I mean, they, they walk around and they see some of these kids with wads of cash and food to eat and things like that, and it looks pretty enticing, and they look at their own situation and go, hmm, pretty grim. Yeah. The other side looks a little bit more enticing. Yeah. Now, did they offer any... Okay, so no short-term solutions, as you've mentioned, but... Um, Addressing poverty, that, that is something that you kept saying throughout this interview that they kept stressing. Yeah. And well, so... They said two things in that regard, I would say, two broad things. Okay. One, they said, um, there's no investment in the North End. Everything is gone from the North End. Recreation centers are gone, swimming pools are gone, drop-in centers are gone. Just, there just aren't enough of any of those public facilities to meet the need. So, you know, and this is consistent with our analysis, there has been a divestment, uh, disinvestment in uh, the inner city and the north end over a long period of time. So part of their argument is invest in the inner city to create the facilities that are needed particularly to support uh, young people. But the other thing that they said that we found particularly interesting and that I think is particularly important is that these guys uh, are interested in getting legitimate jobs. Uh, they're prepared to work. Now, wh- what we think is that they they can't walk into just an ordinary, everyday job because right. they are really tough, street-hardened, prison-hardened guys. They're covered in tattoos. Right. Their, their demeanor is pretty rough. Their language is pretty rough. So they're not going to get a regular kind of job like you and I might get. Exactly. So, so our view is that the, in, instead of trying to force them into already existing jobs, we say create jobs that fit them. And there are some examples of jobs that are designed specifically for gang members. One of them is OPK, which works with uh, street gang members uh, to teach them how to renovate housing. Um, And, uh, you know, there is now a 30-person wait list to get into OPK. There are 30 street gang members who are out there creating mayhem in the inner city in the North End now who would rather be working with OPK. So so we say, look, let's put the money into OPK and other such programs to put these people to work. And when they go to work with OPK, they're renovating old housing, so 
they get paid. They, they, they gradually move out of a life of crime. Uh, oftentimes, as they move into legitimate jobs, their family situation stabilizes. They stay with their partner. They, they stay with their, uh, uh, with their children. And the deteriorated uh, housing of the North End is renovated. And Every, in, everybody benefits. And everybody wins, and the self-esteem, of course, uh, is enhanced. So well, that's of, right. It was really interesting. These guys, uh, two of these guys, are working for one of these programs, and they made it very, very clear that they feel really good about doing this kind of work. They like doing these, this kind of work. And they especially feel good because they're giving something back to their neighborhood. Well, thank you so much, Jim. We could talk about this topic for a very long time. And uh, you've really given us uh, a good idea of what people in gangs actually have to say. A lot of times we don't actually get to hear from the source. So thanks so much for your time. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you very soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. And that's Jim Silver in Winnipeg. Hi, my name is Cy Gonick. I'm the um, executive producer of Alert, and um, I have the privilege of talking to with, uh, today with uh, Tom Workman, who teaches political economy at the University of New Brunswick, and we're talking to him at his home in Fredericton. Tom has just published an extraordinary little book that we're going to talk to him about. It's called, If You're In My Way, I'm Walking. Hello, Tom, and welcome to Alert Radio. Hi, Sai. It's uh, good to be on the show. I'm curious about the title of your book, uh, If You're In My Way, I'm Walking. Where does that come from, and why did you choose it as your title? Well, uh, I, I, being an academic, really came up with boring titles all the way along, but there was a story in one of the chapters uh, on the uh, liberal uh, parties gutting in the early 90s, early to mid-90s of the unemployment insurance program. And uh, there's an incident that many people may recall that took place in Hull where a, a fellow was uh, protesting against the cuts and was, was, uh, was shouting uh, Christian au chômage uh, as Christian, was, uh, the prime minister, was walking past him, meaning, Christian, you should be unemployed. And I guess he was too close to uh, Prime Minister Christian at the time, and Christian uh, grabbed the protester apparently by the throat, oh, yes, and it became uh, quickly dubbed as the Shawinigan handshake. Yes, we all uh, remember that one. And uh, so later on, uh, what what happened was uh, when he was the next day when he was being asked uh, about this in the media, he said, "Well, some people are in my way, so if you're in my way, I'm walking." Uh-huh, and it kind of symbolized symbolized the the arrogance and indifference that uh, okay. a lot of policies have. Okay. have uh, kind of heaped on the on the working class in the last okay, uh, few decades. That's uh, a reminder of a little, little event that many of us remember. Uh, so um, uh, for the purposes of this interview, um, we're going to focus on your last chapter, Tom, okay. which, which you titled Restoring the Canadian Left. Right. So first off, when you talk of the Canadian Left, what are you speaking of? Who, who, who are you talking about? Well, uh, I, I think that it, uh, I conceive of it as a, a, a fairly wide uh, band of, of, of people, uh, and a lot of the, uh, the groups and parties and organizations and so on that would think of themselves as being kind of critical of public policy and especially neoliberal pol- public policy kind of loosely make up the left. Uh, it's, it's very pluralistic. Uh, and I think that it, it runs from the academy right down to the rank and file of much of the labor movement. And uh, I, I don't, 
I think beyond that, there's kind of no hard and fast way to, to describe it. But I do think that that left, though, once we kind of loosely identify it, splits into two kind of noticeable uh, camps or groups. And uh, one very small part still maintains a kind of critique of capitalism, a very fundamental critique of capitalism. And the other, a much larger uh, section, uh, kind of uh, uh, functions at the level of a kind of constant policy critique. Uh, and the issue of capitalism itself is more or less off its agenda. Okay, let's uh, stop you there, and we're going to go into this in much more detail. Um, your title of your chapter is um, is Restoring the Canadian Left. Well, why does it need to be restored? Well, it needs to be restored basically because the left is uh, has no, what I might call, political presence uh, or political purchase with respect to policymaking today. It really uh, exists on the margins of the development of neoliberal public policy, uh, and it's been progressively marginalized over the last three and a half decades. And this progressive marginalization means that although the left is still there in spirit, uh, its actual impact is uh, negligible. So when we, uh, and I think this came out acutely in the fall of 2008, because we had a, a, the onset of a, of a crisis, and the crisis had been uh, developing over, over several years. Uh, but once it hit, it hit with such an impact that comparisons were immediately made to the 1930s. And there was a sense of, uh, that there would be something new coming along. And there was even talk of a new New Deal. Uh, but there was a stark difference between, the, 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 uh, between the, the era of the 1930s when a New Deal was forged uh, and when, when policies, uh, when, when significant advances were made in Canada as well, uh, b- between that era and the contemporary era, where the left itself really isn't going to be consulted significantly. It's going to be left out of any new New Deal that comes along. Uh, and uh, that is, that, that is a, a tragic situation or a loss, uh, and uh, it just speaks terribly to the, to the marginalization of the left at the moment. So we have to restore this left so that it begins to actually have a voice in the development of public policy at a minimum. Okay, we'll get back to that uh, topic uh, momentarily. But first, um, how would you characterize, Tom, what the left wants and... Uh, in comparison, in your view, what it should want? Well, what the left wants at the moment, just generally, is, is what, I'm, what I would be inclined to call a kind of uh, reactionary uh, politics. Uh, it, what it does is it takes the various elements of a neoliberal agenda and it then responds to them. So rather than seeing uh, welfare policies reformed, uh, it, it, it says that welfare policies need to be deepened and strengthened and not reformed and, and cut. Uh, it would like to see public health care preserved against the kind of movements towards incremental health care privatization. Uh, it would like to see the minimum wage raised and so on in the, at a time when the minimum wage isn't really keeping pace with the, with the increases of the minimum wage aren't keeping pace with the rate of inflation and so on. Uh, so it reacts to various elements of the of the neoliberal agenda or this dominant kind of public policy paradigm that has been uh, evident in the last. I'm few sure years. that as our listeners are hearing this, they're saying, "Well, all that sounds pretty good. What's wrong with that?" Yes, uh, and uh, it, it is good uh, as long as it is uh, sustained. Uh, the problem is it can't be sustained uh, largely because the policies have responded to deeper crises within the, the accumulation 
of, uh, agenda of large uh, capital itself, what we call transnational capital. Uh, so what it is is it's defining these, these goals uh, only because suddenly they're being cut. To even restore them, though, uh, is not going to result in a substantial improvement in in the in in the basic kind of condition or or or, or uh, um, quality of life for most working people. Uh, so they're not likely to be restored. There has been no success in terms of this resistance. The cutting has just continued unabated for several for several decades. Uh, so not only will it not be restored, but even if it is uh, restored, it's not going to make a significant change. These problems, these tendencies, and these characteristics are really uh, pr- problems associated with the character of our, our, the way we make things, uh, capitalist production itself. It, it's not, these are not temporary glitches or small problems. These are problems fundamentally r- rooted in the nature of capitalist So you're, you're starting to answer the other part of this question, what should the left be wanting yeah, and w- what I would argue, and I think many have, uh, have have argued over the over the years as well, is that what we really need to do on the left is center a critique of capitalism, so that when we are confronted with these tendencies, the gutting of social policy, for example, or the uh, use of labor law to actually hammer the working class, when we are confronted with these policies, we need to understand that they're not idiosyncratic developments that are peculiar to any given uh, year or any, any, any given administration. These are tendencies that are kind of rooted most fundamentally in the character of capitalist societies themselves. And so only when we start to do that are we going to be able to see that you can make limited gains from time to time, but those gains are likely to be stripped away fairly quickly. And this is the, the part of the last, uh, uh, this is the story of the last three or four decades that has probably most taken the left by surprise. Because after the, 19, after the uh, end of World War II, there was an agreement that benefited the working class or significant segments of it for about uh, two to three decades. And slowly and sh- but surely and not surprisingly, uh, they have been stripped away and stripped away systematically and strip- stripped away to a fairly considerable extent. In your book, um, you looking for why uh, the, the radical direction of the left has uh, been um, given up, uh, you are looking at and, and in a sense, uh, blaming the NDP in part for that. Yes. Uh, how, how is the NDP responsible for that? Well, the NDP is... is uh, I, I wouldn't hold it responsible in the sense that it, it alone has kind of commandeered the direction of the left. But the NDP has participated wholly in the, the kind of eclipse of what I would call a kind of left public philosophy in Canada. Uh, despite its pretensions, it really has, for the most part, uh, embraced the neoliberal agenda. Uh, and it, it, it continues to kind of uh, uh, display ideas or, or try to kind of promote the perception uh, that it really is in the interests of uh, working people. Uh, but in the end, uh, it, and, and most consistently, its policies have tended to basically follow uh, the uh, liberal uh, uh, or conservative uh, line. So it really, it's, so the NDP hasn't made much of an impact. Uh, and um, so to continue to kind of um, hope 
that the NDP will suddenly uh, do an about-face and, and respond more critically to capitalism uh, or to these problems and start acting in the interests of working class gen- the working class gen- genuinely, I think, is, is probably... Mis- now, what about well, unions? You're also not so high on, on what, what they're up to these days. Well, um, unfortunately, the unions have been, been really set back on, on their heels. I, I think a lot of hope for the restoration of a left is going to, going to emerge from... Uh, from a more militant stance on the part of labor. Um, but this is the same labor that's really been dealt a, 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 a blow in the last 35 years. Uh, it's back on its heels. Uh, we see all sorts of, of uh, kind of standard practices today, dismissals, firings, decertification votes, etc., to say nothing of the kind of uh, all-out aggression against organizing itself on the part of capital. Uh, so that the union movement isn't really much of a movement uh, at this time. And what we can forget is that it was exactly the labor movement, especially the labor movement in the 1930s and 40s, that actually cemented the gains that we saw in the early post-World War II period. Uh, there's a natural conservatism, perhaps, on the part of, of labor leaders. Uh, I, I call it an iron law of button-down caution. They, they are a cautious lot. Uh, but there was a time when... They were still a lot more militant than they are now. So only if labor kind of becomes more militant are we going to start to see pressure being brought to bear on these uh, policies so that maybe they start to, to the, the trends are... are now, Tom, uh, in your book, you're calling for what you're calling a restoring of Canadian left culture and quitting politics. You yeah. say that sort of in the same breath. You, you've got to quit politics and begin to restore Canadian left culture. Well, what, what does all that mean? Yeah. Well, by, it does sound a little uh, inconsistent or contradictory. Uh, when I say quitting politics, what I really mean is suspend our civics reflex for the moment. Uh, writing your member of parliament or voting is not really doing much. Uh, and uh, a lot of politics really has been dumbed down to the level of entertainment. Uh, I don't think in the American context it's, it's, it's an accident in any way whatsoever that Obama, for example, just this week has been doing the, the talk show circuit. Uh, and uh, that, I think even in the Canadian context, we, we're not really much above, above that. Uh, a lot of politics unfolds at the level of, of, of shibboleths and Orwellian thought stoppers, and they really aren't about developing a rational response to the problems that we are encountering. So in what is restoring left culture amount to? What is it concretely? Well, concretely, I think that what we have to do is find our natural, uh, the natural kind of um, uh, seat of where we develop a left public philosophy. And I think that that is in things such as the explanatory pamphlet. Uh, it's in the study sessions that were very common in the, in the, in the interwar period. It's weekend retreats, free schools, church basements where uh, we need to develop a kind of uh, uh, set of our uh, of unique fora that are apart from the kind of mass mediated world. Uh, we need to really return to what are our roots, where we developed as a as a as a group uh, a, a, an outlook that is critical of capitalism and that uh, an outlook that could lead to something that we might comfortably call a left public philosophy. Well, what about the you know the age of the internet? You're you're pushing us back to you know forty and fifty years. As if nothing has changed. Yes. yes. Well, in the Internet, uh, certainly it's great for networking. 
Uh, I think you have the phenomenon of digital descent, uh, but I don't think the Internet necessarily uh, encourages uh, the development of, of the kind of uh, rational reflection that is so crucial to the formation of a, of a left public philosophy. It's wonderful for distributing information, uh, but that information ultimately has to be social. It has to be, uh, uh, it has to be exchanged face-to-face. Uh, we need to uh, find the, the, the kind of uh, venues that, that encourage that kind of uh, open discussion. Uh, so uh, I know that, the, uh, that there's a lot of faith placed this day in, in this day and age in blogospheres and digital descent, but I, I, I don't think it's going to help as much as these old venues. Uh, these venues that were absolutely central to the development of a, of a much more critical left outlook decades ago. All right, Tom, one more question. Um, who is going to uh, take the leadership in restoring uh, left culture? Um, I, I don't think there's any one group uh, that will do that. I think that what will happen, or I hope that what will happen, is slowly we'll start to realize that certain things just have not worked. Uh, politics in the civic sense of political participation simply hasn't worked. Uh, we have forgotten most of what we need to remember about the history of the working class and the wonderful achievements. We don't really celebrate the voice of worker workers significantly. Uh, and even more sadly, perhaps, a lot of what we tend to think of as left cr- criticism is, is kind of folded into uh, a nationalist discourse about Canada. Uh, we need to find our roots kind of collectively. Uh, and I think that slowly what we'll do is realize that many of the strategies that we've followed in the last four decades sim- simply haven't worked. Uh, e- exhaustion and cynicism to some extent will make us explore or lead us to explore collectively these new venues. And when we do that, uh, I think that slowly we might be, de- be able to develop the basis for a genuine discussion on the left about what to do. Okay, Tom, uh, that's great. We will reflect on that. And uh, I know that um, uh, we've asked you to, um, to write a, uh, an article in Canadian Dimension based on your last chapter, and our readers, uh, readers can look forward to that sometime in the near future. Yes. Um, and great talking to you, Tom. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And this week, and for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be presenting some Canadian songwriters. Some of them you know, some of them you won't know. Some of the songs you'll know, and some of the songs you won't know, which is the usual kind of mix that you get when you deal with folk music. One of the things that is really pretty clear to me is that I'm looking for, when I'm looking for songs for the show, I'm looking for songs that say working class, I'm looking for songs that say struggle, I'm looking for that kind of feel in the music, and there is so much music of this. And in many ways, you you can get really too ideological, (laughs) And you can present just Pete Seeger singing labor songs. I'm not going to do that because that's boring in a way. And uh, Woody Guthrie used to sing all these songs, these wonderful songs he wrote about, about American people and uh, their human struggles. And we always sort of thought, well, there should be a Woody Guthrie for Canada. And we adopted This Land is Your Land, and we wrote Canadian verses for it. And I always thought they were terrible. I always thought they just didn't fit quite right. And 
as a kid, I was waiting for somebody to come along. And then one day, along came probably the best songwriter I think we've ever produced. Along came Stan Rogers. Dust cake from your nose Hear the tractor's steady roar Oh, you can't stop now There's a quarter section More or less to go And it figures that the rain Keeps its own sweet time You can watch it come for miles But you guess you've got a while so ease the throttle out of air Every rod's a game And there's victory in every quarter mile Poor old Kuzik down the road The hardy K-Land hoppers brought him down He gave it up and went to town the other day Took a heart attack And died at 42 You could see it coming on Cause he worked as hard as you In an hour Maybe more You'll be wet Clear through The air is cooling now Pull your hat brim further down And watch the field behind the plow Turn to straight dark roads Put another season's promise in the ground any good The money just might cover all the loans You've mortgaged all you own Buy the kids a winter coat Take the wife back east for Christmas if you can All summer she hangs on When you're so tied to the land Times come and go, but at least there's rain, so this won't be barren ground when September rolls around. So watch the field behind the plow, turn to straight dark roads, put another season's promise in. 
watch the field behind the cloud Turn to straight dark roads Put another season's promise in the ground That was Stan Rogers with Field Behind the Plow. That song so influenced people. There's a farmer in North Dakota named Chuck Suki who, uh, it changed his life. He, he went out and became a folk singer instead of a farmer. <laughs> Stan, of course, was, was known as a maritimer. And, uh, and, his, and his family is from Cancel, Nova Scotia, where you today find the Stan Rogers Folk Festival, which is a booming event and a wonderful event. And I'm going to play. I'm going to play what I think is, in many ways, uh, Stan's best song. It's a, It's about the loss of employment. It's about the loss of a way of life altogether. I think this is a very political song. It's a beautifully written thing. The Genie C. Come on, you lads, draw near to me, that I be not forsaken. This day was lost, the genie see, and my living has been taken. I'll go to see no more. We set out this day in the bright sunrise the same as any other my son and I and old John Price in the boat named for my mother I'll go to see no Now it's well you know what the fishing has been It's been scarce and hard and cruel But this day by God we sure caught, caught And we sang and we laughed like fools I'll go to see no I'll never know what it was we struck But strike we did like thunder John Price give a cry and pitched oversight now it's forever, he's gone under I'll go to see no more Now a leak we've sprung, let there be no delay If the genie sea were 
saving John Price is drowned and slipped away So I'll patch the hole while you're bailing I'll go to see no But no leak I found From bow to hold No rock it was that got hurt But what I found Made me heart stop cold For every seam poured water I'll go God, I cried as she went down. That boat was like no other. My father built her when I was nine and named her for my mother. I'll go to see no more And sure I could have another maid In the boat shop down in Dover But I would not love the keel they laid Like the one the waves roll over I'll go to see no more So come on, you lads, draw near to me That I be not forsaken this day was lost the genie see and my whole life has been taken I'll go That was Stan Rogers with The Beautiful, The Genie Sea. The first album he ever made was, was Fogarty's Cove, and, uh, and he, had a, he had a song on it called Make and Break Harbor. And Make and Break Harbor really kind of convinced me about this guy. You know, the interesting thing is when you talk politics with Stan, which I had the wonderful and misfortunate ex- uh, experience to have to do that, Stan wasn't, uh, he wouldn't come out and say, well, I'm a lefty. He wouldn't do that, though he took great pride in having led an attack on a bridge one time with a bunch of people over Amchitka. He was a he was an interesting character altogether. But he uh, he really had the ability to capture the human condition in almost every situation. And probably, in my view, he's he's absolutely the most great Canadian writer. So here is his classic, "Make and Break Harbor." 
How still lies the bay in the light western airs which blow from the crimson horizon. Once more we tack home with a dry empty hole, saving gas with the breezes so fair. She's a kindly Cape Islander, old but still sound, but so lost in the long lighter shadow. Make and break and make do, but the fish are so few that she won't be replaced should she founder. It's so hard to not think of before the big war when the cod went so cheap but so plenty. Foreign trawlers go by now with long-seeing eyes, taking all where we seldom take any. And the young folk don't stay with the fishermen's way. Long ago they all moved to the cities, and the ones left behind old and tired. Can't work for a pound, for a penny. In make and break harbor, the boats are so few, too many are pulled up and rotten. Most houses stand empty, old nets hung to dry are blown away, lost. And forgotten. Now I can see the big draggers have stirred up the bay, leaving lobster traps smashed on the bottom. And they think it don't pay to respect the old ways that make and break men have not forgotten. For we still keep our time to the turn of the tide in this boat that I built with my father. Still lifts to the sky the one longer and I still talk like old friends on the water. In make and break harbor the boats are so few, too many are pulled up and rotten. Most houses stand empty, old nets hung to dry are blown away lost and forgotten in make and break harbor the boats are so few too many are pulled up and rotten most houses stand empty old nets hung to dry are blown away lost and forgotten 
That was Stan Rogers with Make and Break Harbor, and this is Music is the Weapon, and I'm Mitch Podolik, and I'll see you next week. is Alert Radio for September 24, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. Thanks, as usual, to the people that help us put this radio program together. Sagan Morrow for writing the headlines. Ben Wood for Around the Left in Seven Days. Our technical producer, Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Cy Gonick. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. Also, Mitch Podolik for Music is the Weapon. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com.